0: Right as we continue our series, Bulls, Bears, Blackhawks, oh my, this week we're talking about the Cubs, and, uh, and we're talking about the Blackhawks, and i got to be honest with you, I know absolutely nothing about hockey in general, so I know even less about the Blackhawks. Starting this week, I knew they won something sometime this past decade. I thought the star player's name was Toes, and uh, that they were in Chicago. So that was all, uh, all of my knowledge of the Blackhawks. And so I have educated myself a lot this week with uh, Blackhawk stuff. I read a lot, um, and it was fun. It was a fun endeavor just to learn a bunch uh, of new things. I still have no idea what the rules of hockey are and what I, I just can't. It just doesn't work. Thank you, thank you, Travis. <laughs> it's just I watch it and I'm like, I what? Why? What? I don't know. Now they're punching each other. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, I think that part, if they applied it to some of the other sports, would make it a lot more fun. But, um, anyway, I digress. Uh, so we're talking about the Blackhawks today, and I learned a ton about the Blackhawks. And so we're in this series, and our main verse for the whole series is, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That we are pressing on towards this goal, that always with sports teams, it's really easy to figure out what the goal is. The goal is to win championships. No one is going, you know what, I hope we have an okay season this year. I hope we don't get last, you know? Every once in a while, you have a team that actually has a goal that they want to get last, um, and it's very evident when that happens because they want to get a better draft pick or whatnot. But nobody's like, oh, man, I want to be second to last. That's my goal for this year. It's, it's just not, Everyone sets out to win the game. And for us, I think we might figure um, out winning the game looks different for each one of us. And that could be a problem. And that's a little bit of what we're talking about today. But what I really want to focus in on today is about ownership. And as I studied the Blackhawks, as I studied what that looks like and uh, who they were and who they are, ownership became a huge theme of the Blackhawks' story. And so as I kind of just read and incorporated and thought about what I could do with the Blackhawks' story and how uh, we can bring the Scripture to life through that, I started thinking about this idea of ownership, that ownership... Changes everything. Ownership changes everything. This is a life principle, a leadership principle, a spiritual principle. Ownership changes everything. With the Blackhawks, it's especially true. The Blackhawks have uh, this distinguished history of being continuously sabotaged by their ownership. Sabotaged, and in the worst way sabotaged by their ownership. In fact, the ownership of the Blackhawks has been so bad in the past that their actual league rules that the NFL, the uh, baseball, uh, basketball have all adopted because they don't want to be like the Blackhawks. That's how bad. From 1944 to 1966, the guy who owned the Blackhawks also owned a small little team called the Detroit Red Wings. You may have heard of them. And, but he liked the Red Wings more than he liked the Blackhawks. He made more money with the Red Wings, and so what happened is they didn't just only get their own draft pick in Detroit; they got the draft pick for Chicago as well. And so what would happen, like in modern day, if if um, Kane or uh, Taze... I said it right. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm learning. See, I can be. I can learn. Um, if they would have gotten drafted like they did. What would happen in 1945 is they would have picked some old washed up guy in Detroit and said, let's trade him one for one for Taze. Right? Think about what that would have done to the Blackhawks of today if it would have like, traded for someone who just retired. The whole future of the Blackhawks. He is the team, right? He's the, the core of it, the, the captain. I'm wearing his jersey today. Uh, and so this is happening continuously for 20 years. Two years. And if the guy wouldn't have died, it would have gotten worse because he he was he was the main pusher to get the uh, St. Louis team in St. Louis. Well, he owned the Coliseum in which the hockey team was playing in St. Louis and a portion of that team as well. And so instead of only you know, your own farm team is not enough, and, and then the Blackhawks wouldn't have been enough, but you also would have had a St. Louis team feeding into the Detroit Red Wings. Well, he passed away, and people said, okay, wait, wait, wait. We can't do this anymore. So families aren't allowed to own two teams anymore. That has happened. And that's happened in all of pro sports because of that. I think we can all agree that's bad ownership. It's bad ownership. It's great ownership for the Detroit Red Wings. But it's terrible ownership for the Blackhawks. Ownership changes everything. And so you get a new family. I think I believe it's the Wintz family uh, took over. What? Wurtz. Wurtz family. Thank you. The Wirtz, I, got, I got like an instant fact check going on here today. Uh, <laughs> This is this is better than the State of the Union, right? It's like, nope. Um, <laughs> the Words family, Words family takes over. There's some success, some a lot of failures. Um, it goes on, goes on, goes on. Finally, the guy I don't know in his, uh, what happened, but he decided to be, try to become the worst owner in the history of owners. And in 2004, the Blackhawks had the distinguished honor of being named by ESPN as the worst professional franchise in hockey? No. In Chicago? No. In all professional sports. That's worse than the Raiders and the Browns. How do you do that? <laughs> right? Like, they actively try to lose. <laughs> but he is the worst The worst franchise, and that's all because of the owner. What does the owner do? You guys probably, if you're fans, you know what happened. What he did is he wanted to drive up prices and participation at home. And so he said, no, no televised home games. So you get no televised home games in the Chicago area. No televised games. So you lose all that revenue. And so the Chicago people have a choice. We're either going to go support the Blackhawks or we're going to stay home. And so, if they go support the Blackhawks, what they do when they find out um, there is a issue there, or they come to the ticket box, they walk up to the ticket box. The ticket box is more the most expensive tickets in all of the NHL. In two thousand four, the average ticket was fifty bucks. I have no idea what it is now. You might go, "Wow, I'd like to get a fifty dollars ticket now." I, but the average ticket was fifty bucks. That's way over everybody else's prices. Had the lowest attendance of any prof, of any um, NHL team. And what was, that? there was something else going on. Oh, the, uh, the, the biggest fans of the Blackhawks, the announcer for like 20 years, goes to the Wolves, the minor league team. And the minor league team, the Wolves' slogan becomes, come support us, we actually win. <laughs> like, only Chicago would a professional team do that, but that was awesome. Like, wow, wow. Ownership changes everything. 2007, something happens. Old man warts, passes. New young man Wurtz, comes to power. He does everything different than his daddy. He immediately sets up a, a TV contract. He immediately does different things with ticket prices. He immediately drafts differently. He immediately he does everything different. And in three years, the Blackhawks are winning a national championship—the first one in 49 years. Ownership changes everything. Isn't that amazing? In three years, they revert all this bad baggage going on. Now, Chicago Blackhawks have the highest attendance of any NHL team. Flipped it. That was only 13 years ago that it was the worst. Now it's one of the best. It's amazing to think about. Ownership changes everything. What does this have to do with the Bible, Jared? A lot. And we're going to explore that now. We're done with our Blackhawk portion of the the morning. So here we go. Ownership changes everything. Ownership predicts direction. As we press on toward the gold, we have to ask ourselves, who is the owner of our lives? Because who the owner is determines the goal in which we pursue. Right? It was evident in the Blackhawks. The goal from 44 to 66 was to make the Detroit Red Wings better. That was the stated goal. That's what what everything was going towards that. So the direction was never going to rise above. It did not matter if someone got really, really good, they were going to get traded. So the players, I mean, can you think about the incentive to to want to work well, good, and and play hard? Like, okay, I don't want to move to Detroit. (laughs) What, What would that have been like? But ownership predicts direction. Who is the owner of our lives? You have the guy who just wanted money, and he caused all kinds of problems. And now you have the, the son who says, you know what? Let's, let's change this ship around, and the direction is positive. Three national championships in six years. Definitely a swing of direction. In the Bible, this story is played out over and over and over and over and over again. If you read 1 Kings, 2nd Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, you will see this same exact story. It's the Blackhawk story, like just there, written over and over and over again. And it is called this. And he did evil in the sight in the eyes of the Lord. Right? You get a new king in, got full promise. You can do better things, King. You can, you can, you can change the ways. You got this. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I remember I was in third grade, and my mom read me, or I read the parts I could, the whole entire Bible in a year. We read the whole thing. And I loved 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, because lots of war and fighting and Goliath getting his head chopped off and all kinds of cool stuff's going on, right? And then we get the kings, and like there's a cool story, and then so-and-so does evil, so-and-so does evil, so-and-so does evil, so-and-so does evil. And it's like, are you just reading the same thing over again? Nope, it's a new king. They're messing up the same exact way as the old ownership predicts direction. One of my mentors taught me a leadership principle that I teach since the seven years I learned it. It's the simple uh, sentence, what flows over the head flows over the body. Jimmy and Kelly are like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I know this. What flows over the head flows over the body. And that comes from this Old Testament idea of the prophets anointing the king's. And so they would dump a bucket of oil on their head and the oil would be, this fragrant smell would pour over their hair, into their beard, on their shoulders and all over them. And the idea was that this anointing would flow over the king and then would flow over the the kingdom of of Israel or Judah or the combined kingdom uh, when that would happen. And so what flows over the head flows over the body. This anointing would flow over. The, The application of that is, however you lead whether you lead at your house you lead at work you lead at at church you lead uh, our country you lead whatever what flows over your head flows over your body you know there's only so much you can do to lead up right you ha- you can't you, maybe you have a terrible boss kevin's like yeah um you have a terrible boss there's only so much that you can you can lead up but you can be directly responsible for the stuff underneath you what flows over your head flows over your body what happens at your kitchen table is flowing over your head, to your body. What right? well, flows over the head, flows over the body. This is something that over and over and over again, as the kings get more evil, the people get more evil. As the kings try to repent, the people get better. They come back to God. It's what well, flows over the head, flows over the body. You, watch, you read it in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you can see it happening over and over and over and over again. If you Google bad kings of Judah, you will see all kinds of charts of how these guys continuously messed up over and over again. They, they, you will, you can Google it, and it will just it'll split Israel and Judah, and they will say this guy was bad because of this, this guy was bad because of this, this guy sacrificed babies, this guy did this, like it will it will do them all, and you're like, wow, these were the lead. no wonder Israel was so screwed up, it was so messed up. Because what was flowing over the head was flowing over the body, and bad stuff was happening. Ownership facilitates destination. Ownership facilitates destination. An owner is the person, the one person, that really determines if you are headed to the Stanley Cup or you're sitting at home on vacation. It's the owner. It determines if you go to the playoffs or not. That, that, that applies in, in baseball, it applies in, um, it applies in football, it applies in hockey. If the owner hasn't set up the team for success, like if you remember Major League, right? From like, the owners were, were, were going against it. And the big thing about Major League, the comedy, is I'm not proposing that you go watch the movie. But if you, if, you, if you watch, the big thing was the owner was always trying to sabotage them and it made it so hard for them to get to the next level. Ownership facilitates destination. See, there's a story how Israel even got kings. What happens in 1 Samuel is the people look around. They're in Israel. And they're looking around and like, you know what? We need a king. We need somebody in charge of us, help us out, do the diplomacy stuff. We need a king. Samuel's like, you don't want a king. Samuel's one of the most important prophets in the whole Old Testament. And he says, uh, you don't want a king. I said, yeah, 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 we, yeah, we do. No, you don't, you don't want a king. Yeah, we do. One minute. Samuel goes over to God. God, I don't, I don't know how this happened, but he goes, God, uh, they want a king. He's like, I know, Samuel. i kind of omnipotent. I see everything, know everything. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, you know about the situation we're having. They want a king, and this is terrible. And Samuel's distraught. He's like ripping his clothes. He's putting ashes on his head. He is distraught because he knows what this means. What the people are actually asking for is, God, we don't want you to be the owner of our lives anymore. We don't want you to be the owner of our country anymore. We want a human to be the owner of our country now. And the problem with that is, as like, you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you, you don't want this. And they're like, yeah, we do. And God says, give them what they want. Give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And so what happens in Israel is he gives him a king, a guy named Saul. He works out so well, he goes insane in about 20 years. The next guy is David. Well, David, hey, David worked great, except David's half of his reign is in civil war. Solomon, woo, Solomon. Solomon introduces a bunch of the cult-like processes that mess up all the remainder kings. Well, flows over the head, flows over the body. In fact, the unified kingdom of Israel only lasts for three generations, and about half of it is in civil war. This is not working out well when the best of your story is in civil war. And what was the transition? What was the the thing that happened is we wanted ownership to be taken from God and put to man. Ownership facilitates destination. What flows over the head flows over the body. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In that last sentence, God, Jesus is talking specifically about money in this issue, but we can take out money and put all kinds of stuff in there. You can't serve God and fill in your own blank. You can't serve God in anything else that will, will vie for ownership of your life. They don't work. Ownership facilitates destination. When God is the owner of your life, everything is flowing from Him, and your destination is heaven. When the owner of your life is money, when it's some occupation, it's some hobby, it's something else, the destination of your life is hell. Hell's definition is the absence of God. Well, God's not going to sit there and go, oh, you know what, I really, I want I'll work with money to be God in your life. No, God says, no, well, I don't need you. He won't do that. When the Bible says God is a jealous God, it's because he wants all of you. When we make God the owner of our life, our destination is heaven. When we make something else the owner of our life, the destination is hell. The definition of hell is being apart from God. And when you choose something else for your life other than God, you have chosen hell. The reality of this is many of us come to church every week and have to face this. When it comes down to it, we're trying to serve two masters and it's not working. We have the anxiety. We have the confliction inside us. We, we know something's not right, and it keeps on battling in our souls, in our hearts. It keeps us awake at night. It makes us feel anxiety. It makes us feel like something's just not sitting well. It's because we've chosen a different owner than our true king. There's a king in the Old Testament named Josiah, and Josiah kind of shows us this battle better than anyone else. Josiah is Judah's last best hope at having a good king. Josiah came to be a king at eight years old. He is a boy king, and uh, he, he is shaped and formed by some mentors that are godly men. And so Josiah is the last best hope for Judah to finally get out of this, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Josiah comes to power, and he has a period of regency, but when he's about 16 years old, he starts coming into his own as king. And we're going to read out of Second Chronicles 34. Verse 3, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his directions, the altars of Baals were torn down, and he cut pieces of the incense altars that were above them. They smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. Then he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests of their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. He politely told them to leave. He said, you know, it's okay if you do that, but just not on Sundays or Saturdays, the Sabbath. No, he purged it from the land. He purged it. He destroyed it. We have other kings who kind of did this. They would come to power and be like, okay, guys, just don't go to the Asherah poles anymore. Asherah poles are um, basically the altars for this god Asherah and some really, really crazy. uh, They we have... pagan prostitution around them and some other things going on there that's just totally antithetical to God, like totally anti-God. When you read Baal and you read Asherah, just think everything that God is not, that is who these gods are, okay, who they were being represented of. It's just evil, nasty, bad, bad, bad stuff. And so Josiah, instead of tolerating this, he purges the land. He destroys it he takes it away. He grinds up the altars, like if you were known to be someone who was a, an astro worshipper, he he ground it up and said, "All right, well, I'll throw that junk on you. You can have the garbage pile." That's how I'm going to decorate your gravesite. And so everyone in the whole kingdom knows we're not we don't. This is something different here. And for us, what does that mean for us? What do we apply to our own lives in that? One, Josiah's steps can be our steps. But two, we must purge the idols of our life. We can't just play with them like, oh, I'll only do that an hour this week. And we rationalize away the stuff we struggle with. Oh, I will just do that a little bit less and it'll get better. You do it, I do it. I'll only have one Twinkie this week. You know what? I don't need any Twinkies. I haven't had a Twinkie in forever, but I don't know why it popped in my head purge the idols like right you go home and you keep all the the candy in your in your pantry all the candy all the the junk food still there but you're like i'm going on a diet how well is that diet gonna work it works until you get hungry until you ran out of lettuce or you get tired of almonds and kale's just not cutting it right but if you remove all the package stuff and you throw it away and you get it out to the street and you're, you know, hopefully it's, it's garbage day and you can't just go gab into it. No, you purge it. You get rid of it. And we laugh. So I have, so we're like, oh, good. It's not about me anymore. No, it's about you. It's about the stuff you've got in your life. It's taking ownership from God. Purge the idols. Now, we've been to this part a lot in life. We heard sermons on getting rid of the bad stuff in our life over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again. I've given those messages. I've heard those messages. They've made me feel guilty. I've gone home, and kids in, in, uh, in the 90s would go home and take their CD collections at camp and throw them in the fire and, and do all these big, massive donation ideas of I am getting rid of this. But then we find ourselves two weeks later going, man, I really wish I had that ACDC CD. And we go and buy it on iTunes. You ain't throwing my, my cell phone in the fire. We have to purge the idols. And so Josiah does this, but he also takes next steps that I think are really applicable to you and me as we try to do this in our lives. So we try to make God the owner of our life instead of all this other junk that distracts us and leads us to destruction. 2 Chronicles 34, 8. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of azalea and messiah the ruler of the city with joah joah son of joaz the recorder to repair the temple of the lord his god then he went to hekelah the high priest and gave him money that had been brought into the temple of god which the levites who were the gatekeepers had collected from the people of manasseh ephraim and the entire remnant of israel and from all the people of judah and benjamin and the inhabitants of jerusalem The remnant of Israel, because Israel is still giving to this. Israel has been destroyed and there's only a few people left here. Um, They entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work of the Lord's temple. These men paid workers and repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dressed stone, timber for joists, beams for the buildings for the kings of Judah, and allowed to fall into ruin. The second thing Josiah does is he repairs the damage. And this is a step I think sometimes we just don't do. We we get rid of, but we don't repair our hearts. We don't repair our souls. We don't repair um, the, the bad habits that we've had. We don't put in something new, right? So this people, we've destroyed their temples. We've re- destroyed their high places. We've destroyed the astropoles, but we've got a garbage heap of a temple going on here. And so, people who are wanting some sort of spirituality going on in their life, they, they need to do, fill that in some way, but they just don't know where to go. And so, Josiah says, You know what? We've got to restore the temple. And so, he sends the money and the, the, the best of the best. He sends the mayor and he says, I don't care about the city. I want you to fix the temple. He sends his secretary and the recorder and all the most important people. He sends, like, the secretary of state to go and fix this is your job. Fix. The temple, restore it. And sometimes we miss this step in our own lives as we purge out the bad, we don't restore our hearts afterwards. And so when we purge out our hearts, we we cause a vacuum to be in our hearts, in our in our lives. And if we don't heal it, we just allow other junk to come right in. Repair the damage. If you have ownership issues in your family life, repair the damage. If you have ownership issues in your own life, repair the damage. He gathers faithful men to repair the damage. You need to gather faithful people in your life to help you repair the damage. And that's we have a life group signups out there. That's what life groups are all about. Is life groups are about inviting people into our lives to help us not go down the wrong paths anymore, but to repair the damage and to walk with us as we get healthier, as we explore the scripture, as we deal with all that. And finally, Josiah, what does he do? He gets in the word. This is amazing to me. It's heart-rending to me. This episode, what goes on, but read with me in, in verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken to the temple, Hakaliah the priest found the book of the law or the Torah of the first five books of the Bible. Okay, he found them, which means they were lost. Right? The Torah makes up the center of our scripture. Like Jesus, everything he does, he basically is quoting the Torah. They lost it. It's not just collecting dust, it is, oh, where it went. This is the biggest treasure. The Jewish people bring to the world, and they lost it. So if it's lost, how would they apply it to their lives? And if they can't apply it to their lives, of course they're falling in league with astropols and baals and all this nasty stuff. Hekelia the priest found the book of the law the Lord had been given through Moses. Verse 15. Hekelia said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. Verse 18. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hekelia the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Verse 19. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. And this is the symbol of complete distress. He just rips it. Because for the first time, maybe even in his life, because there's this auditory, there's this oral history being told to him. Maybe the histories of David, the history of of Abraham, the history of Moses, these stories. But for the first time in his life, he's hearing the law and how far his people that he is in charge of are from it. He's hearing the ramifications. He's maybe hearing the the dumb things that his family had done, that his father had done, and going, Oh my gosh, we are so far from what you want from us, God. And it it breaks his heart. Later on in this chapter, or early on in the next one, Josiah does something. He reinstitutes the Passover which is the most important thing in all of Judaism. It is, it is the moment in which the, the blood of the Lamb is put over the doorposts of the people to protect them from the angel of death. It is the harbinger of why Jesus is called the blood of the Lamb, why he is the Lamb of God, because he covers our sins and his blood pays for our sins. It's the same act. Like the, So they're not even doing the Passover. They're not even doing the Passover. This is the most important thing Ever. This would be like, we call ourselves Christians, but we don't know what Easter's about. And so he re this because he's studying the scripture going, we've got to do things differently. So what does he do? He First, he purges the junk out of his life. The second thing, he starts to repair his, his world. And the third, he fills it with the word of God. And for you today and for me today, if I'm going to really have, enact life change, if I'm going to be different than I am yesterday, if I'm going to set myself on a different direction, if I'm going to place ownership instead of on myself or on somebody else or someone who has has authority over me or someone who has got their claws into me in a relationship, if I'm going to give my ownership to God, I've got to purge myself of that stuff. I've got to repair the damage and find people that will help me repair that damage. And I have got to get the word of God in me. Because in that word of God, it, the word of God caused the life change. And this is, these are steps that, that nobody else took. No one else went back to doing the Passover. No one else repaired the, 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 the temple. They just maybe, just maybe, might have, the best of the bad ones, might have purged some of the astropoles, poles. And I can't help but think about my own life and how I've tried to get through stuff and how I've put maybe money as a, as a God in my life or maybe a girl as a God in my life or some hobby as a God in my life. And when I try to get rid of it, i just like, okay, I just won't do that. But have I taken it out? Have I repaired the damage and have I let the word of God speak into my life? And so I will, will change my ways. The last thing Josiah teaches us is that pride goes before the fall. I wish I could tell you that Josiah did everything right for the end of his days. He had many sons that were great rulers, and everything got better. I can't. This is one of the reasons I know the Bible is written by God. It's because he tells the bad things too. Right? Man would have been like, everyone lived happily ever after, amen. Right? Josiah. Gets it. I don't know what he was thinking. He gets into his head. I don't know if he read too much about David, and David could beat anybody. He thought, I want to be David, whatever. But what he does is uh, the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, is going to battle someone else. So he's got his full army. He's got all of his power, and he's got to go through. If you look at a map of where Israel is, if Egypt wants to attack anybody to the north, they've got to go through Israel. And so... Uh, Josiah runs out in his army. He's like, What are you doing? And uh, Pharaoh's like, Can I go by? I'll pay you some money. It's cool. I'm kind of powerful here. I want to attack those guys over there. Everybody's like, Josiah, let him do it. And Josiah is like, Nah. No, I want to attack him. Josiah wants to do this so bad that he dresses up as a different person to attack the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at this time. This would be like if we were landing troops, or I don't know, marching through and like Rhode Island was like, no, you can't, uh, can't come through here, American army. Rhode Island's uh, going to beat you. This is silly, right? And so they're coming through and it's like, all right. So Hezekiah initiates this battle to fight the most powerful man in the world, and Pharaoh. Hezekiah becomes a pincushion and gets filled with, the Bible says he got hit with many arrows and he dies of his wounds. Couple things that, that uh, Josiah did not do: he didn't pray, he didn't go to the temple, he didn't consult the prophet. He's got the prophet Jeremiah, one of the most famous prophets ever. is alive at this time. He doesn't say, hey, "Jeremiah, what you think about if I attack?" Nothing. He just does it on his own. He thinks he's got it all together, and it costs him his life. I'm gonna be honest. Even when I have purged junk out of my life, when I've put the word of the Lord in my hand, when I think I've got it all together. I fall really, really quickly. And so we have a world that sees Christians and says, man, they are hypocrites because they fall down all the time. Yeah, it's because we sometimes think we've got it figured out. And we're not applying the lessons that we can learn from here. Pride goes before the fall. It happened to Josiah and it happens to us as well. There's about three more kings that get killed really quickly after Josiah of Judah. And then the nation state of Israel is gone. It's destroyed. Because the, the, the complete defeat in that battle just destroyed them of having any military power uh, and ability to defend themselves. Josiah's pride, even though he'd done so much good his pride in thinking that he had it all figured out cost them their future. The pride that I think when I have it all figured out has the ability to cost us our futures as well. Ownership changes everything. The Blackhawks failed with bad ownership, but they became a dominant force in the NHL with good ownership. And it happened quickly. And the same thing can happen for you. Ownership changes everything. You cannot serve two masters. This morning, I want to help you get maybe your ownership issue of life solved. This morning is a time in which we can make God owner of our lives. This is a morning that when we can say, God, I can't do this anymore. I mess it up. I put all kinds of junk in front of you. I put the shiny object. I put even maybe good things. I put my family ahead of you. But in reality, I've made something else God in my life, and I've got to make you Lord of my life. If that's you this morning, I want you to pray with me. As the band comes up to lead us in our last song, but I want you to pray with me this morning. God, that you would be Lord of my life, that you'd help me rid myself of all these idols, of this junk, of these distractions, of this stuff, so I can become the person that you want me to be. God, maybe these these idols have been hidden for me, and if you would bring them to my face, that I would recognize maybe where I've hidden some stuff, that I've, I've been in denial over some stuff that has control over my heart. I would make you Lord of my life this morning. Would you give me the strength to get rid of my old habits and to fill me with your Holy Spirit? I ask forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Amen. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. Ownership changes everything. It can change everything for me. It can change everything for you.